Philippians chapter 1. This is a treasured uh, letter, and I think for many of you here tonight, this is a letter, this is a go-to letter in terms of scriptures that you've memorized, um, so many beautiful nuggets in this uh, wonderful letter, and I know it is going to encourage you as it has encouraged me over the years. Uh, Incredible, uh, rich, encouraging letter that Paul writes to the Philippian congregation. We're gonna set a little of the backdrop of the letter and we will move through the first six verses tonight with the title, He Who Began a Good Work in You. And then there's an ellipsis there, but I think most of you know it, he will complete it. He who began that good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ. So that is the beauty of where we're headed tonight. The overall theme of the Philippian letter, although it could be debated among those who look at the letter and teach the letter, for me, is the attitude of Christ. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I would call that the practical and theological center of the letter, and we'll touch on that after we pray. So would you join me? Father, thank you so much for this precious time of worship that we've had as your people. This almost could be maybe a picture of what the Philippian church looked like. It wasn't a big church, but it was a beautiful church. It was a church filled with love and gospel passion and truth and love for the Apostle Paul who had come through there and planted the church and a reciprocal love relationship, no doubt, that... uh, can only be really found in the people of God. There's nothing like the church in all the world. And as many problems as we can talk about, there's nothing like the family of God. No deeper relationship that will last not only for time, but all the way through eternity. And we're so grateful for these deep relationships we enjoy. I pray that you'd help us to connect more if we don't feel as connected as we could be. But tonight, Lord, we pray you would minister to your people through this incredible divine letter, and I pray also that you would shape us to be more like your son as we put on the mind of Christ and we live out that uh, priority in everything we do, everything we say, how we pray, Lord, and how we live. We love you and we lay the whole study at your feet. We pray you'll do wonderful, exciting, and miraculous things. In Jesus' name and all God's people said... Amen. So I'd like you, and I think it's going to be hard for you to make the letter of the Philippian letter personal to you, but I want to show you what I believe is the center and the theme of the book or the letter, and it's going to be in the next chapter, Philippians chapter 2. Paul's talking about encouragement in Christ and affection and love and unity, and he says in verse 3 of Philippians 2, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then here's the big theme of the book. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, what uh, Paul does here, which is a little bit unusual, is he will often in his letters move from a doctrinal reality, a theological truth about Christ or who you are in Christ, and then to your duty as a response to that doctrine. Here he actually flips it around, and he says this is your duty, not to look only for your own personal interest, to put others before yourself, and then he tells you the doctrine behind the duty. In other words, he tells you what you should be doing And what theological doctrine drives that behavior? And here's what it is. Although Christ existed in very nature God or in the form of God, we'll talk about that when we get to this passage, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of men. Now, I'll leave that uh, alone for tonight because I'm not going to exegete The next chapter, we're going to go back to chapter one. But I do want you to know that having this attitude or this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, is something to be thinking about as a big theme throughout every section. And of course, we only have four chapters to share. And so these are four power-packed chapters. And I believe if your heart is open to the Holy Spirit 
and how God would shape and form you, you're going to see some incredible things to think about, to apply, and to model your life after. So um, he who began a good work in you is tonight the big theme, the attitude of Christ. Kind of a sub-theme is joy. This is a letter of joy. It's about perspective. It's also about serving. It's about having a joyous attitude, but also having an attitude of service. And the two do go together. It's about an attitude of humility. If Christ was uh, willing to leave the glories of heaven and humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, then we can humble ourselves as well, can we not? And we can live for the glory of God and put others before ourselves. And I'm not saying that that's easy, but that is the point of the center of this particular letter is for us to live like Jesus, to have his mind, his attitude in everything that we do. And we're gonna need God's help for all of that. Paul wrote this particular letter somewhere between 60 and 62 AD. He wrote it during his first Roman imprisonment. And uh, he penned also during that Roman imprisonment, uh, Ephesians. And these are uh, books that you're familiar with, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Uh, Shane just finished up the the series in Philemon. So these are called the prison epistles. Uh, Epistle is another word for a letter. Both Colossians and Philemon were written to the same church. The author of Philippians is the Apostle Paul. And the the end of the book of Acts, if uh, you turn there with me, uh, lays this out. The end of the book of Acts shows us what was going on with Paul and when he wrote these prison epistles. Let's turn to the very last chapter, chapter 28. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And pick it up with me, 28... Oh, let's see. Verse 30. So it's the last two verses of the book of Acts. And Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters. He was under some form of house arrest. He was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Now, during that two years, if you take a look at verse 30, uh, is when scholars believe that he wrote those four letters I just gave you one more time, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. That's why they're called prison epistles. Uh, Paul's not literally behind bars, as we would envision arrests. He's under some form of house arrest, and you might picture it more in modern uh, ways of thinking with the little thing around your ankle, Hopefully none of you have had to experience that before, where they're tracking you and you can't, you really don't have full freedom, but you're not behind bars, as it were. That's what seems to be going on with the Apostle Paul. And during those two years, he was obviously doing a lot of ministry, and he had unhindered opportunities. People came to him. He shared the kingdom of God with them. And uh, during that time, he also had the time to write these four letters, Now, in Acts chapter 16, we have the backdrop of the Philippian church and how it came to be. Let's turn there together so that we can see how this church emerged and how it was planted. Acts chapter 16, and we're going to pick it up in verse 10. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out Acts 16, 11, to see from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and on the day following to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, here's the city to which this letter is written or the church in the city, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. Uh, it was conquered by Rome, therefore became a Roman colony or extension of the Roman uh, kingdom or empire. And we were staying in this city for some days. So now here's what they would do. On, when they would go into different cities in the book of Acts, Paul's on these missionary journeys, the first thing they would do is look for a synagogue. Paul was a Jewish rabbi, So he usually would have an opportunity to speak to a group of Jews assembled on Shabbat or on the Sabbath, 
And he would open the word of God. He would open the Old Testament and begin to preach Jesus to them. And then that's kind of how they would start, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. But we find in the, this particular city is that there is not a Jewish synagogue. So that tells us that there's a very small population of Jews there. But on the Sabbath day, 1613, we went outside the gate to a riverside. Uh, that's a neighboring city to us. Some of you live there. Just kidding. And we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. If you're marking your Bible or taking notes, Lydia is the first story of transformation in the area of Philippi. Notice that she's described as a worshiper of God. She's a businesswoman. She's listening, and the Lord opens her heart to respond to the gospel. And when she and her, her household had been baptized, which is always the next step after commitment to Christ or belief is baptism, she urged us, saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us, and some believe her house became the place where the church met. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are bond servants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed. Some of you need to mark that because apparently it's biblical to be greatly annoyed, which gives me great encouragement. And she turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into a prison, into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them in the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling uh, with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, the Philippian jailer is the third transformation in the city. The second is the servant girl. So let me just kind of retrace our steps for a moment. Lydia, the demon-possessed servant girl, and the Philippian jailer are all early members of the Philippian congregation, all touched by the ministry of the Apostle Paul along with Silas in this Roman city, which would have been dominated by uh, you know, false worship and idolatry and the like. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, 32, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. What a beautiful picture of repentance and regret. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now that is the backdrop of the Philippian church, how it was uh, set up, what happened. And this is what happens in every area of the world where a actual church emerges. 
uh, whether you were to go into the bush and you know meet a tribe there who's never heard about God, and you preach the gospel, and a few people become Christians, then a church is automatically started. Do you know why? Because a church is not a building. <laughs> the church is the people of God. The church is you. And so if two or three people got saved in the city of Philippi, they are the church. And whether they met in the Philippian jailer's house or Lydia's house is almost irrelevant because they were born-again Christians who were baptized and, and experienced being born again of the Holy Spirit, and then they began to live their life for the glory of God. And this is the backdrop of the Philippian congregation, is Paul going into the city and simply preaching the gospel, finding at first, if you turn back to Philippians, just a place where people might assemble for prayer and, and preaching the gospel, and Lydia opens her, ha her heart and then her household is touched. And then a servant girl walking along. These are servants of the Most High God. Come to tell you the way of salvation. What's the problem? She's free advertising, right? Well, there's a lot of debate about why there was an issue there. But here's one thing we know. Paul was greatly annoyed. And even being greatly annoyed, he said to the Spirit, come out of her. And she was delivered. Not a whole lot of uh, commentary on you know, what that looked like or what happened, but we know her owners were unhappy because she was a cash cow for them. They didn't care about her. They just cared about what she got for them, which apparently was omens or sorcery or something. And so her owners were making money off of her. And then the Philippian jailer who, you know, the prisoners are hearing Paul and Silas sing hymns at midnight. They've been beaten. They've been put in stocks. My understanding of being put in stocks at that time in history, is that they would spread you out, spread your legs as far as they could spread them and then lock you into place. And that's what it meant to be in the stocks. We sometimes imagine the stocks being the arms and the, and the head through something. But in the ancient world, it was actually your feet that were spread out and then they locked you into place. After just being beaten, and by the way, not in a first-class penitentiary, no doubt, and yet, at the same time, these men begin to sing praises to God. The other prisoners are listening. And then there was a whole lot of shaking going on. <laughs> because what happened? The prison shook. The, fast, you know, the, the cuffs came off. The doors opened. And it would have been easy for everyone just to exit stage left. And the Philippian jailer was like, uh-oh, I'm dead. Because I let all these prisoners out of my prison. But Paul said, don't harm yourself because that's not why we're here. Jesus put it this way. I haven't come to, to harm men's lives. I, I've come to save them. So the Philippian church starts with three portraits of transformation. Every church is filled with portraits of transformation. All you got to do is look around right now. And every one of us have a story about hearing the gospel, being touched by the power of God, if you're a Christian, experiencing being born again of the Holy Spirit, probably for most of you, entering into a time of baptism, maybe soon after you got saved, maybe it was a few years or a few months, and coming out of that water and experiencing the beauty of that picture of being one and being in Christ and having a family who bore witness to that baptism and then growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, finding out what your spiritual gifts are, learning to serve the king, learning what it means to live for God and live for others. What a beautiful thing the Lord does in our lives. And so Paul now writing back to the church about 10 years after the Acts uh, record in Acts chapter 16. So 10 years, a decade's gone by, and Paul writes a letter in the early 60s AD to the church, and he says these words, Paul and Timothy, now, Timothy is not a co-author of the letter, but he spent a lot of time with Paul, and he was a fellow servant with Paul. And Paul is the author, as we'll see clearly throughout the book, but Paul and Timothy with him, you could say, bond servants of Christ Jesus address this church. So Timothy is one that Paul is hoping to send to the Philippians. If you just flip over to chapter two again, take a look. 
verse 19, and perhaps this is why Timothy is introduced. He was also part of that missionary team in the book of Acts, but he says, 2.19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. 2.20, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Remember the whole center of this book is have the, have the interest of others in the mind of Christ. Timothy had that. But you know of his proven worth, 222, that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I know how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. Back to Philippians chapter one. So Paul may be setting the table a little bit for Timothy's arrival. I don't know for sure. But you have the author, you have his uh, protege, young pastor Timothy, if you will. They're bond servants. They're the doulos of Christ Jesus. They identify themselves as servants of Christ Jesus, bond servants, voluntary slaves, if you will. That's what Paul was. That's what Timothy was. Now, if you study the New Testament, oftentimes Paul will open a letter with Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he'll, he'll often add a servant of the Lord, using that idea of the douloi or the doulos, the voluntary bond slave. But here he doesn't mention his apostleship. He doesn't say Paul, an apostle. Why is that? Well, it may well be because Paul had no reason to defend his apostleship in the Philippian church. Uh, places where he wrote Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ is First and Second Corinthians, where his apostleship is being challenged. In the book of Galatians, where there's doctrinal heresy that he has to correct. But here, his relationship with the Philippian church seems to be different. And so he doesn't have to note that he's the apostle or bring out his authority because they're already under his authority. And, and that's a beautiful thing to not have to uh, play that card as it were. This seems to be a church that loved him, supported him. And so he just mentions that he's a bond servant. He and Timothy are bond servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. The author, the recipient to all the saints, verse one, in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. So the saints are the church. Hagios is the Greek word if you're interested. H-A-G-I-O-S. A saint is one who has been set apart, sanctified unto God, called out of the world, called into Jesus Christ. The word saint can mean sacred or set apart. The reason that you are a saint tonight, a saint in the city of Corona is because of the call of Jesus Christ in your life and that you are in him and thus set apart for him and unto him. What makes you a saint is not the performance of your Christian walk. It's rather the relationship that you have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen? And some of us grew up in the Roman Catholic Church and we kind of got this idea that being a saint is, you know, you had to do a couple of special things and the church then had to maybe, you know, approve you or vote on you as a saint. And I, and I get that understanding and I come from that background, Italian Catholic, etc. but that's just not what the Bible teaches. What makes you a saint is whether or not you're in Christ. And if you want Javer and McGee's uh, wisdom from past days, you're either a saint or you're an ain't. So you can chew on that one. I was at a Bible study some years ago. We were at the Honey's restaurant, and a wonderful uh, old Italian gentleman was with us, and he had a Roman Catholic background. And we were going through a letter like this, and I said, do you realize that all of you who are in Christ are saints? And it was an early study, and some guys had caked on dried drool on the side of their mouth. It was like a 6 a.m. Bible study. It was, wasn't pretty. But anyway, he was, I could see that he was digesting the truth that had been shared. And he said, I don't know about this whole saint thing. In fact, I look at you guys, ain't none of you saints. <laughs> now, he was coming from his, his Catholic background. But the truth is, here's what the Bible says. If you're in Christ Jesus, 
you are a saint. Amen? Amen. Whether six months in the Lord or 60 years in the Lord, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a saint. I was talking to a football fan uh, last couple of weeks, and we were talking about football teams, and somehow it came up that he was a saint fan. And I said I was a Steeler fan. And uh, there was, uh, there's often confrontations with John the Beloved here. You guys know little John the Beloved? I shouldn't call him little, but anyway, he's, he's a shorter guy, but he's such a fun guy. And he said, I don't know how you can like a team like the Steelers, Pastor Michael, that it's a team that's breaking commandments. I mean, how can you? He goes, my team, the Saints, it's, it's a biblical team. Your, your team, they're a bunch of thieves and robbers. And of course, the Steelers are for steal, the material, not Steelers, thieves. So you got to get, get that right. But anyway, never mind. But I will agree that Saints are probably a more biblical team. So there you go. So to all, to all the Saints, key phrase, in Christ Jesus. That's what makes you a saint. If you're in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, notice, including the overseers and deacons. Now, we don't see this. I don't know if we see this in any other letter of the New Testament, an address to overseers and deacons. Now, the word for overseer there is episkopos. That's where we get the idea of episcopalian. But episkopos is a term used for a Christian leader or overseer. And as you do a little study on elders, pastors, etc., and this word sometimes is translated into English as bishop. Um, there are those who would argue that a pastor, which is the Greek word poimen, the word elder, which is the Greek word presbyteros, or where we get Presbyterian, and then this idea of an overseer, sometimes translated as a bishop, which is episkopos, are all the same office with different expressions. In other words, they would say that an elder slash pastor in a modern church or in the church as it unfolded has the role of a shepherd. That's what the word pastor means. Poimen just means a feeder of the flock. You have an elder, which speaks of maturity and can speak of an older man, but it, it, it probably primarily speaks of one older in the faith. More, it speaks of just maturity in the things of God. So you have pa pastor, elder, and then episkopos is the idea of overseeing the flock. That would be for protection and care and uh, you know, watching out for them as a watchman would watch from the watchtower, etc. Combining the three ideas, many theologians that we would all respect would say that all three concepts are found within the role of an elder or a pastor so that there's not really a distinction between that. And so if you want to walk that out a little bit further, you begin to look at something called the pastoral letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus, namely. And when you look at those letters, you see requirements for elders and pastors. For example, they're to be the husband of one wife. They're to be able to teach. And then the rest of the description in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 have to do with the conduct or the reputation of that individual. So how would we say one would be qualified to be an elder or pastor of a church? Well, there would be a spiritual maturity to them. They would have a desire to oversee the flock, not by lording it over them, but to be an example and to protect the flock. And they would be a feeder of God's people or a shepherd. Jesus said to Peter before he went back uh, ultimately into heaven, he said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And so the role of an overseer is to protect the flock, care for the flock, flee, uh, feed the flock, and lead the flock. Amen? Amen? Okay. So that's the role of the overseer. And then notice the second address is to deacons. Diakonos is the Greek word. It means a servant or attendant. It's mentioned in Acts chapter 6 and many other places like 1 Thessalonians 3, 2. And the word for 
a deacon, diakonos, is uh, most probably another office. So if you read commentaries on Philippians, you you would see some people say Paul is addressing maybe just kind of two different sets of servants in the church. But why spend the time to lay out uh, and use episkopos and diakonos if you're just addressing the saints overall anyway? It just seems to be like, meaningless repetition unless he's addressing two specific offices. Why would he address elders and deacons in the opening of the Philippian letter? Well, it may well be because part of what's going on in the Philippian congregation is a need for some healing. For example, one thing that's going on, and we find this in chapter four, is that there's a fight going on between two women in the congregation, Euodia and Suntuke. And these two women had served Paul in the gospel ministry and they weren't getting along and it was causing some rippling out in the Philippian church and we'll get there in chapter four. And Paul basically says, I want you to tell these women to live in harmony in the Lord. Uh, here's, a, here's another thing to be thinking about. This is at the end of chapter one. This church is going through some persecution, apparently. Look at verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner, chapter one, verse 27, worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. My point is simply this, that maybe Paul is pointing this out to the overseers and deacons because they're gonna have to walk the church through a time of persecution. They themselves need encouragement, but they themselves also need to be challenged to model for the church what they need to do. Now, I will tell you right now, the world, in terms of the West, is at a place that I have never seen in my time on this planet, where outright persecution is coming to the church in Canada, and in the United States. And the last couple years have brought that out where churches to our north, if, if you haven't been here for this and maybe you don't know about this, churches to our north like in the Santa Clara area being fined by cities because they just wanted to be open during COVID and fines going up to $1.5 million and court cases flying back and forth. And some of this is still reverberating in the Christian community right here in our state, let alone the stories that we've heard in Canada where pastors have been literally arrested and put in prison. And so James Coates is a name that some of you have heard, studied at the Master's Seminary, planted a church in Canada, just wanted to keep his church open during COVID and finally was thrown in prison. And he spent, as I recollect, something like 40 plus days in prison. If James Coates would have wrote a letter to his church, and I know he wrote a letter to some folks, uh, and perhaps it was his church, or he, he wrote a couple different letters, I think. It, was, it wouldn't be divine scripture, but you can kind of see the parallel. He'd be writing to encourage the church to hang in there uh, through whatever they may face. And those kinds of unique experiences, which we've only read about in our Bibles and studied together over the years, are now kind of thudding at our doorstep. And it does bring a different level of challenge to us as believers here in the West. Because most of what we've heard about persecution, we've heard through the wire. We've heard through missionaries or you know, maybe you went on a short-term missions trip and you, you got a little taste or you heard from the locals that this is what happens if you're a Christian in this area or this region. But it's becoming more and more closer to home and more and more concerns about nefarious kinds of things that are occurring. 
uh, in different places and in in high uh, levels. And so you can see how this would be really important that elders and deacons would stand together and would model uh, what the church should be doing. I will tell you that each Saturday for the last several years, uh, and, and more recently with our deacons, our elders and deacons meet right after our men's breakfast and we pray together. And uh, oftentimes there's, you know, 20 guys in the room. And uh, we just are here to encourage one another that we need to continue to fight the good fight uh, on behalf of Living Truth Christian Fellowship, where the Lord has put us in positions to care for the flock and model the faith, etc. And that's a really beautiful thing. And this is actually a scripture I've shared with them before in Philippians 1.1, that we are called to be elders and overseers and deacons and servants of the body. And that, that's a call that we don't take lightly. Now, we have the recipients of the letter, and we're going to have to move pretty quickly here. But notice a, a common opening, grace to you and peace. The word grace is charis in Greek. It's a beautiful word about the goodness of God, the strength of God, the benevolence of God. Grace to you and peace. The word peace is irene in Greek. The Hebrew equivalent is shalom. And so Paul might, in his Jewish, Jewish way, he might say grace and shalom from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how closely they're associated. He might say it this way, grace and peace from the sender and the sent one, from the Father and the Son. May you experience it through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what O'Brien says about the greeting. Early Christians were in the habit of placing one another one another under the grace of God. Um, this is a form of a farewell greeting in much of the, uh, the, the uh, church and in the book of Acts. I now commend you to the grace of God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Acts 20, verse 32. The uh, greeting, whether it is a greeting or a farewell, is to place someone under grace. Place them under grace. Hopefully, you're not placing them under condemnation, under judgment, under gossip, under whatever else you would do. Place God's people under grace. If, if you were someone, let's just say that you're a Jewish Christian. Let's say Paul saw a Jewish brother. He would probably say to him, if it was the Sabbath day, Shabbat Shalom, or he might just say Shalom, And in saying shalom, what he would be saying is, may you be well, and may the God of all grace, the God who gives peace, give you peace. So think of the the twin uh, meaning here. May you experience all the the benefits of God's benevolence and strength, because remember, grace is a word that speaks of our salvation. We are saved by grace, through faith, but grace is also the... Uh, strength of God into our lives. My grace is sufficient for you, Jesus says to Paul when he prays, for my power is perfected in weakness. Amen? So may you experience the grace of God. These are Christians already. So I think the second, the latter definition is probably more apt here. They don't need to experience the saving grace of God. They've already got it. What do they need? the stabilizing grace of God. They need the strength of God and the peace of God, which in chapter four, he will say, surpasses all comprehension, amen? Amen. So let me ask you, practical application. When you greet brothers and sisters in the Lord, do you place them under grace and wish them shalom? Now, I think many of us do this. But Paul is not with them. He's doing it via a letter. And he's going to talk about how he prays for them. And I was studying this even today and and thought, you know, oftentimes our prayers, because of everything that's going on, and because for those of you who are on the prayer chain, so many people hurting and in need of prayer, our our prayers often have kind of, they, they take a turn of sometimes kind of a bummer because there's a lot going on. But the way that Paul encourages himself 
joy from jail, if you will, is by remembering these incredible saints. Notice verse 3. I thank my God. The word thank is eucharisteo. It's where we get the idea of the Eucharist. But here it's the idea of just grace combined with the idea of goodness or being well. I thank my God in all my what? Remembrance of you. Every time I think of the Philippian church, Paul says, I thank God. Now I hope and pray that you do a lot of that. I hope and pray that when you come to a time of prayer, at least part of your prayer time can be a thank you list of people. And part of what you can do in your prayer life is continue to place them under grace and pray for their peace, amen? But also to give thanks to God for who God has put in your life whether it is someone that you see regularly in a local fellowship, whether it's someone that you've crossed paths with in ministry at some point in time. Paul says, I always am offering prayer. How? With joy. Joy, one of the underlying themes of the letter to the Philippians. In my every prayer for y'all, which means that Paul was from the South, Look at what he says. I'm always offering prayer. He's not praying 24-7, but every time he prays about this church, he is filled with kara, the root word of grace. He's filled with joy. The word for joy there, if you look it up in a lexicon, it's calm delight, gladness, or cheerfulness. Calm delight almost sounds like a tea that you might have late at night. What are you drinking? Calm delight. Maybe some of you need to drink in a little bit more joy. So you, have, you might have a little bit more calm delight. In fact, if you've been the opposite of calm delight, which would be a frenzied mess, <laughs> perhaps a little bit more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit which one of the early fruits listed is love, peace, and joy. Now, how in the world does a guy who's apparently chained to a different Roman soldier every several hours write this way? How does he pray this way? How does he have this kind of mindset? Because he says in chapter two, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And when we are confronted with the reality of how our Savior conducted himself, he had the oil of joy above his companions, Hebrews chapter one. He washed the disciples' feet the night before he would die on the cross. They argued about who was gonna be the greatest and Jesus said, no, 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 not in my kingdom. That's not what we do here. We don't lord it over people. You are here to serve. And if you want to be the greatest among my group, then be servant of all. Have this attitude in you, which was or is in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. If we want transformation to occur among God's people, among the relationships that we say are the most important to us, we are to have this attitude in us which was also in Christ Jesus and also in Paul who said, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Amen? This is the Christian life. This is the beauty of the Christian life. This is what it means to have that mind, that spiritual mind. To get rid of the carnality and the self-centeredness, which we all battle with and carry into, you know, uh, a relationship with the Lord because we're not fully, you know, redeemed yet. Uh, we've experienced redemption, but you know what I'm saying. There's a not yet portion to it. And he says, I'm, I'm always offering prayer with joy. My every prayer for you guys. And I, I think this is a wide application. So look at verse five. In view of... Why is he so thankful? 
in view of your koinonia in the gospel. That's the word used here for participation. If you have a New American Standard, in view of your participation, your koinonia, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, which is 10 years later. You guys are still fighting the good fight. You're still coming to the prayer meetings. You're still preaching the gospel in the community that, in which you live. I'm hearing about, and he might say, that two new people were added and baptized in the Philippian church. Praise the Lord. You guys are doing the work. You're participating in the gospel. You are partners with me in the gospel. Praise God. If you flip over to chapter 4, I don't think it's just monetary, but there's a monetary aspect because here's what Paul says about this church. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, uh, no, not verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And then flip over to verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. This church was preaching the gospel practically, verbalizing the gospel, if you will, but they were also supporting gospel work, missionary work, namely the, the Apostle Paul. Look, the Christian life is not an either-or prospect. It's a both-and. And here's, here's what it looks like. As the church of Jesus Christ, we are to preach the gospel in our sphere of influence. You look for opportunities, you preach the gospel, friends, coworkers, neighbors, friends, coaching, whatever you're doing, sports. But you also support the gospel by your giving, amen? The Philippian church is a great example of that, and I would say this church is a great example of that, supporting 10 missionaries around the world, dedicating $100,000 of our annual budget to radio. Do you know that you guys support most of that? Now, our listeners are now giving, and I got a letter from a lady in Kansas, Kansas City, Kansas, about two weeks ago, who said that this ministry out of this fellowship, it has meant the world to her as we aired the book of Isaiah on Walk in Truth Radio. As last month in January, we had 10,000 podcast listens from this little church in Corona going all around the world, around the United States, and we'd like to go more places, but I'm just saying to you, when you guys give, when you support the ministry, when you preach the gospel and you give, this is what the Philippian church was doing. That's why Paul is in some form of imprisonment and giving thanks to God for this church because they were doing the work of ministry. They were partners. There was a koinonia, a beautiful partnership in the gospel from the very first time Paul entered the city until now. And the last verse. For I am confident of this very thing. I'm sure of this, ESV, that he, God, who began a good work in you will complete it or perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. I am confident of this very thing. In the book of Hebrews, you know, some prickly passages in the book of Hebrews about, you know, once saved, always saved, you know, eternal security. Can you lose your salvation? Same word is used here, but beloved, Hebrews 6, 9, we are convinced of better things concerning you. The things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Paul in prison says to the Philippian church, I am sure of this. I'm not sure of a lot of things in this world, Amen. <laughs> But I'm sure of this, that he who began not just a work, but a good work in you, he will finish what he started. And sometimes we look at ourselves and we're like, Lord, I would have given up on me a long time ago, right? 
But here's the truth of the matter. God knew what he was getting when he first called you, and he ain't done with you yet. In fact, he who began a good work in you will complete it. Until when? Until the day of Jesus Christ. You know what the day of Jesus Christ is? It's the day of the Lord, because he's the Lord. And do you know what day that is? When he comes to resurrect and rapture his people and to judge the world until the very end of the age and leading into the new golden age, he who began a good work in you will finish it until the day of Christ. You can take it to the bank. And I know sometimes we wonder, well, what about, could I jump out of his hand? Or, you know, what if I don't cooperate? He's got ways of getting you to cooperate. <laughs> it's called discipline. He does it for people he loves. You all know that, right? He disciplines the ones that he loves. Look, I don't believe in eternal presumption. I don't believe that someone should just get into a baptismal and say, I'm good, or I, I walked forward at a, a camp when I was 12, and there's no fruit in your life. There's nothing that makes you look like a Christian, but but you check the box. We're not talking about that kind of stuff. We're talking about a church that was doing the work of ministry filled with imperfect people. Amen? Amen. Filled with people just like us who had their foibles and their personality quirks and their seasons when they're hot and cold and, and times when they struggle with sin patterns and then overcome them and commit sin and need to repent of it and all of it. But in the end, Lovers of God. <laughs> and he who began that good work in you, he will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I threw a curveball at Shane. I said, uh, Shane, to close Wednesday night service, I want you to sing, he who began a good work in you will complete it by Terry Clark. If you don't know who Terry Clark is, you need to repent and return <laughs> to your first love. Now, Terry Clark is an old Maranatha singer, hails back to the Calvary Chapel days, way back in the early days. And uh, I'll tell you a quick story. Shane gets set up. So uh, when we had the 9-11 tragedy, uh, the week following those events, we had a member at our church. We were a, a small church, probably no bigger than the group of people that are here tonight, uh, numerically speaking. And um, this member goes, hey, have you ever asked Terry Clark to sing at your church? And it would be almost like seeing if Phil Wickham could sing on Sunday here at Living Truth. It would be, you know, that kind of challenge, right? That's how Terry's popularity was back in that day. And I said, I'd love to have him. His music ministers to me like few others, but I don't think we can get him. He said, well, why don't you call? Somehow we got the phone number. So I called and his wife answered. And I said, hi, this is Pastor Michael from Living Truth with this little church in Corona. And would you ever consider coming? And, and she said, well, this is an interesting timing. Because of 9-11, she said, flights are shut down and we're not going where we were going to go. We were going to fly up to Oregon and lead at a church. But now our Sunday is open. And I was like, well, woo-hoo, come on down. Terry Clark came and led worship in our little church. And I had just two requests. One is a song he sang, thank you, Jesus, for the grace that you have given me. I could never repay. But from my heart, I'd like to say that I Thank you. And this song that Shane's going to take a shot at, <laughs> he who began a good work in you, he'll be faithful to complete it. Amen? Amen. He who started that work, he'll be faithful to complete it in you.